Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Your comments, uh, email science at newstalk.com. You can, you, can, you can X us. That sounds very dirty. At News Talk Science. Um, coming up on this week's program, we're going to be talking about that uh, story that, that broke this week about the first UK womb transplant. The, the details of it are absolutely just mind-boggling and uh, and just what it might mean for the future. Really, really interesting conversation. We're going to be speaking to uh, Connor Garrity uh, from First IVF about it. First, though, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining me is Dr. Lara Dungan, uh, medic and immunologist, and Dr. Fergus McAuliffe from ICRAG. Uh, Lara, our first story has to do with a new sort of blood test that has huge potential. So I'm wondering, is this the way medicine is going? This is new research that's come from Imperial College London. And what they did was they took um, just over 1,200 children who were admitted to hospital with fever of any kind. So obviously a child comes in with fever and it's very difficult to know straight away what's going on. And what ideally we need are tests that can quickly demonstrate what the problem is. But a fever could be an infection. And if it's an infection, it could be bacterial. It could be viral. If it's not an infection, it could be an inflammatory condition. There's lots of different things that can cause fever. Um, And what these uh, scientists did was they took blood samples from these children and they looked at their RNA. So when you want to make a protein, which is essentially the role of DNA, the DNA is the template. And then RNA is read off the DNA and it's like a little message that then goes off to another part of the cell, turns it into a protein. And that is essentially what makes our body do the things it does. And these little messenger RNAs are degraded quite quickly. And so they're very much kind of finger on the pulse of what's happening in the body at that exact moment. And they did a very interesting breakdown of the RNAs that these children were producing. And they specifically honed in on 161 genes. And they found the pattern of expression for these genes. And they found that it correlated in 18 different ways with 18 different diseases. So anything from malaria to tuberculosis to an inflammatory disease called Kawasaki's disease. And they were able, they feel, to isolate from the makeup of the RNA that was being expressed at that time what disease these children were likely to be suffering from. And they could do this within about an hour. So it's extremely fast. Now, this used to be cost prohibitive, uh, certainly at least 10 years ago. But RNA and DNA sequencing is becoming faster and it's becoming much cheaper. And it's just a really interesting way to look at it. it. It's not telling you what virus is there, but it's telling you how the body is reacting and assuming that the body knows what's there better than we do as scientists or microbiologists or anything along those lines. They then validated it in 400 children who were admitted with fever. And it's not perfect. It's not a test that's going to be in the clinics this year, I don't think. But it's just a fascinating way to quickly figure out what is going on with children who you don't know what's happening. It can take days to grow a bacteria. It can take even sometimes weeks, for, for instance, for something like tuberculosis. If you could do this in an hour or two and start treating them, it would just be amazing, really. Um, do they have to do 16 different blood tests? Because that's about an armful of blood, isn't it? No, it's so easy. It's literally just one blood test. And <laughs> it would be exactly an armful, by the way. Um, but it's just one test. And, and you do essentially gene sequencing on it. So actually, you need a very small amount of, of blood as well. Now, I'm presuming they use peripheral blood here. So just blood that was drawn um, from a peripheral vein. And this is anywhere from a child that was a few weeks old up to 18 years old. So they had, you know, over a thousand children. And they looked at this this really kind of, I think, very exciting. I, I kind of do wonder, is this the way that medicine is going? There's, there's approaches, especially in the States, where they're doing a 
gene-first approach. So if a child is born that in any way appears to be unwell or there's something abnormal, they're just, some in some situations, they're straight away just doing a whole genome sequencing to try wow. and find out what's wrong before they go into thousands of other tests. Because you can actually do whole genome sequence in about 20 hours now. It's really, you know, phenomenal stuff. So I kind of do think the way medicine is going is going to be partly along this way. So this is a really exciting study. Fergus, our second story has to do with a, a milestone, I suppose, in space exploration for India. Yeah, this is really big news because this week India managed to land um, a rover on the moon and they they become only the fourth country ever to do this. Um, so uh, where they landed on the moon is down by the South Pole. And this is quite a tricky area to land in, as we saw just a few weeks ago when the Russian Space Agency tried to land actually quite close by and crash landed. Um, so what the Indians have taken on and managed to do really is an extraordinary feat of engineering and also means that there's now essentially a fourth space superpower that we have. Now, what the rover itself will do and the lander is that it's going to roam around on the craters that are in in that area near the South Pole. And it's it's carrying a few different instruments. It's interested in the soil. But in particular, what it's interested in is because the South Pole um, is largely in shadow. Right. And there's lots of 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 craters there. The thinking is that those craters that are permanently in shadow may hold um large quantities of ice which could potentially be of use to us humans if we ever wanted to go to the moon we can turn um we can turn that ice into water but we can also turn it into to oxygen for fuel as well what's really interesting here is is um the amount of time that's available to this mission because the rover itself um it's moving around on the surface of the moon at a centimeter per second, right? So it's not even inching forward. It is literally centimetering forward. <laughs> but it only has 14 days in which to carry out its mission because they only have 14 days worth of sunlight in order to actually keep the rover charged. Because after that, where it is on the moon, it goes into 14 days um, of darkness and they don't know if the rover will have enough power to come out the other side. So this is almost an example of slow and steady winning the space race here. But what's of real significance here is that we have another country that is on the moon. It is and it is also actually leaving its mark. A really nice little detail. They've almost thought of everything in the Indian Space Agency because as the rover moves forwards on its six wheels, on the bottom of the wheels embossed on it is the logo of the Indian Space Agency, but also that, uh, that wheel symbol that's in the center of the Indian flag. So with every step that this rover takes, it's leaving this really nice and artistic footprint on the surface of the moon. Very cool. Um, Lara, our third story has to do with another type of uh, a test and this one to do with the eye. And I remember, um, I remember hearing from one of Britain's leading uh, retina specialists, uh, they were saying that uh, the the eye is a sort of a window into the entire body and that actually th there's there's the thinking that perhaps you might be able to see all diseases by just looking at the eye. I know it is fascinating, isn't it? I suppose we always say the eye is the window to the soul, but really it is the window to the brain. And when you look at the back of the eye, I suppose if you're looking someone in the eye, it looks like your pupil is black, but obviously your pupil isn't black, your pupil is a whole. And when you get an, an ophthalmoscope, 
with a torch on it and shine it into the eye, you can actually see straight essentially to the brain because your retina is actually a part of your brain. So the eye is fascinating and it's very well known that a lot of diseases can be seen and can manifest in the eye. It's the only place in your body where you can see the microvasculature. So that is the tiny little veins and arteries that supply basically all of our structures, you know, our kidneys, our skin, but you can see it in the eye. So people, for instance, with diabetes that have damaged the microvasculature, you can see that in the eye. But it's like you said, there's a lot more that the eye might be able to offer. And this new research, which came primarily from the University College London, has shown that they might be able to use the eye to see if people are going to develop Parkinson's disease. Um, So what they did was they looked at a retrospective study of over 100,000 people. And of that over 100,000 people, 700 of them developed Parkinson's disease um, during or after the study. And all of these people had a thing called an OCT, which is an optical coherence tomography. It's essentially a 3D scan of the retina, of the back of the eye. And it tells you how thick the retina is. And that can be very helpful for a huge amount of eye-specific diseases. But what they did see is in the 700 people who went on to develop Parkinson's, and they did this again in another cohort of over 60,000 people, and there was over 200 who got Parkinson's, that the retina, or specifically the inner nuclear layer of the retina and the ganglion cell inner plexiform layer, which makes me sound really smart as I read those off the page in front of me, was thinner. So what they found was that in the people that it was thinner, they were more likely to have this the, uh, diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. And the interesting thing they found was that there was some evidence that this could be seen even as far back as seven years before a diagnosis, which, I mean, is scary, I suppose, because if there's no guarantee you're going to get the diagnosis, do you want the news that it's something that might be coming, which is always a question and there's an ethical and moral question around that. But also, if you do know it's coming, maybe you can treat it earlier, maybe you can get access to specialists earlier, maybe it is a much better thing. And and that is the case with Parkinson's. If you knew earlier that you had it, you could treat it earlier and you could get access to neurologists. So it would be really interesting if this followed through to be, a, you know, a sound finding on how you could diagnose it in advance. But a bit scary for the people who have a slightly thinner retina and are not going to get Parkinson's disease because then they are living in fear for up to a decade, I suppose. Why um, do we think they may have a thinner, whatever it was you called it? Like, is there any any, can't any under- nuclear layer and plexiform layer? Come on, yeah. The, but, but, but <laughs> stop it. Um, but the, the um, is there any relationship between uh, Parkinson's and uh, and this structure? Why, why would this show up in the eye? You know, it's a very interesting question because the Parkinson's, uh, sorry, the the part of the brain that's affected in Parkinson's is the substantia nigra. Look, I mean, I suppose at the end of the day, you know, the eye isn't the thing that's primarily affected in Parkinson's. So I'm honestly not sure why there would be thinning of the retina here. But we do know that these kind of diseases cause degeneration in the brain and, and these retinal cells are part of the brain. So perhaps it is just a degeneration that's going on from the disease. Or maybe it's an incidental finding, but look, I mean, I suppose we'll wait and see if the results bear out. And now to throw convention on its head, Fergus, our final story is not a happy story, but one about depression. <laughs> yes, our final story is one about depression. It's it's kind of an unusual um, study in and of itself, because on reading it, it just it appears to kind of confirm almost uh, what we knew all along, sort of intuitively. But essentially, this study out of UCLA in the States, it looked at incidences of major depression and the aftermath of those. So major depression, um, it affects 
quite a lot of people, about about 8% of the US population. But just so we know exactly what a, what a major depressive disorder is, it's, it's, it's two weeks um, of a depressed mood or loss of interest or pleasure in daily activities. And it can be really limiting into, into how you actually go about living your life. Um, and the key thing here is that if you if if you if you do suffer from a major depressive disorder, you are much more likely for that to happen again, especially within those first two years. So any information that could be gleaned that can prevent a relapse happening is welcome. So what they did in this study, it was it was a meta-analysis. So it was it took um, in the aggregate forty-four other studies, so 2,000 people that had um, experiences of a major depressive disorder and almost 3,000 who hadn't. And some of those studies had done different things. Um, an example which was participants were shown either a happy face, a sad face or a neutral human face and asked to push a different button depending on what they saw and they were tracked with how fast the response was. But, but what they found was that healthy participants as a group um, i.e. those who hadn't suffered a major depressive disorder, they they responded much more quickly to to the stimuli that were placed in front of them as opposed to those who had suffered from a history of depression. On top of that, those who had histories of a major depressive disorder, they spent much more time actually processing the negative emotional stimuli over positive emotional stimuli. So this... Mm. This is insight into there. There appears to be a distinctive cognitive pattern that happens if you if you have a have a history of major depressive disorder. Now, we kind of know this already. Like if you're if you're if you're in a low mood and you're having a bad day and it rains, like you feel every raindrop as opposed yeah. to if you if you are feeling good and you're feeling happy and you know like a rain shower passes and it just kind of bounces off you. So, in a way, this is this is kind of confirming in a way what we already knew. Yeah, but it, it, I mean, I suppose it is interesting because when you are feeling like, and, and I have bo- had moments, particularly during COVID, where I felt absolutely like really, really the lowest I've ever felt. Um, tiny little things would be, you know, would be things that you'd really stress about. So, I, I mean, it is something that I suppose we know. But again, a lot of the times you need, you do need to, you need to look and make sure that what you expect to be there is actually there. And I wonder what, um, how this might inform. Uh, cognitive behavior therapy and uh, you know uh, scientists who are trying to help those deal with uh, depression to try and figure out okay how do we get people to shift focusing on those negative things because that's our, our obviously not a, not a great thing to be doing uh, if you want to stay away from uh, relapsing uh, dr fergus mccall from icrag and dr lara dungan thanks very much Now, you may have seen that in a pioneering operation, the the first womb transplant just over the pond in the UK has taken place. How soon might we see something like this in Ireland? And what does it mean for the future of pregnancy? Joining me to talk about this is uh, Connor Harity. He is consultant gynecologist, subspecialist in reproductive medicine at the Rotunda and Beaumont, and he's medical director of First IVF. Uh, Connor, welcome to the program. Um, This is really interesting to me because my understanding was that the the womb or, or uterus is the space in which the fetus gestates um and and, and so I, I suppose we're talking about the the transplantation of i mean not just the space but of uh, uh, the the muscle uh, that make up that space right or, or, or what exactly is being transplanted 
So it's a it's a fully formed organ, not just a space. So the womb is a muscular organ that has a cavity, and that cavity inside the womb is the space, and it's lined by a very important structure called endometrium. And this is what, on a cyclical monthly basis, grows, sheds with the period if there's no pregnancy, grows again and sheds again. So every month it's both passed as a period and then reforms and renews. So that endometrium lines the cavity and that cavity is the space where the embryo implants and the baby grows. So surrounding that space is the whole womb, which is both a lining and then a muscular structure. So it's a complex organ that contains a space, but that organ provides the structures that support the pregnancy, allow the pregnancy to grow, and then triggers the contractions that then lead to labor and delivery at the end of the pregnancy. So it's a lot more than just a cavity and a space. Right. So um, the the transplant of a womb then, what would that involve? Does that involve removing all of that musculature? And uh, and obviously the, the endometrium is, is required. Um, but but how, how much do you take away in a transplant? Yeah, this is a hugely complex process that has been going on for decades. And the first attempt at uterine transplant was actually performed way back in 2000 in Saudi Arabia. And the transplanted uterus started to undergo necrosis, which is death, Mm. and then had to be removed after around 99 days. And the group in Sweden performed the first successful transplant that led to an ongoing pregnancy and live birth. And the group in Sweden spent many years doing studies on animals on what exactly you need to remove and transplant. And what they found is that you don't just transplant the uterus, you have to also take those blood vessels that feed the uterus and supply it with all of the oxygen and nutrients that it needs to to survive. So it's actually a very complex surgery. You remove a lot of connective tissue and blood vessels around the uterus, not just the uterus itself. And that's how the graft is able to achieve a good blood supply and survive. So it is a lot more complex than just doing a straightforward hysterectomy of the womb and then putting that back inside. So much, much more complex. I mean, I mean, what is left? Because this was a, um, a transplant from a living woman uh, who donated the, the, the womb. So in that case, what is left of the, the woman's uh, uterus and the area surrounding it? And how, how do they not need that to stay healthy and function? So that is taken from a living donor. There are instances of cadaveric donation. So like with kidneys, you can either take a live kidney or a deceased kidney and transplant that into the recipient. So with the uterus, it's the exact same. You can either do live or cadaveric donation. So from the recipient, they have the uterus and the connective tissue and blood vessels removed. So the uterus's function is to support a pregnancy. So frequently we remove uterus by hysterectomy for medical reasons, such as very painful, heavy periods that don't respond to standard Mm. medical intervention Mm. or structural abnormalities like polyps or fibroids inside the uterus or even cancers or other abnormalities. So hysterectomies are quite frequently performed. So it's not a structure that's needed for ongoing quality of life. It can be removed without any 
major adverse effect. Right. So concerns aren't after the surgery, the concerns are during the surgery. So because it's not just the uterus that's being removed, it's that connected tissue to the side, the risk of surgical complication is much higher than with a standard hysterectomy. So the recipient is exposed to a much more complex surgery. Mm. A standard hysterectomy lasts around an hour. These retrievals last around 10 hours, so very extensive surgery with a risk of damaging structures like the ureters, which are the tube that runs from the kidney to the bladder, nerves, blood vessels, causing hemorrhage and bleeding. So it's a very complex surgery, the retrieval. And as long as there are no surgical complications, then long term, yes, there will be no adverse effects the donor will no longer have periods and will no longer have potential fertility. But the risks and concerns are intraoperative complications during that initial retrieval process. That's the that's the worry. So there there are, if I'm if I'm not wrong, about four um, procedures that go into this. Um, you have to remove the the uterus. You have to implant mm-hmm. the uterus. Um, there's a a lot that that goes into it. That presumably makes. Um, this particular operation not feasible for 99.9% of women? So it's highly complex, so correct. So we have to have the donor uterus, the recipient has to be a good candidate for the transplant, okay? The pregnancies are all by IVF, so it's not a spontaneous pregnancy after this. Mm. So the recipient, as well as being able to be a surgical candidate to receive the uterus, also has to be able to create embryos and then undergo IVF post-transplantation. So they need to have normal ovaries with a good egg supply. Right. Be at the right age where the, the embryos that they create with IVF will have good implantation potential. And they have to be able to produce enough embryos because with IVF, even with the best embryos in the best environment, the chance of success is only around 50-50. So they need to be able to produce multiple embryos so that if if the first transfer doesn't work, they'll have embryos for subsequent attempts to achieve a pregnancy. Yeah. So, I mean, for 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 some women, uh, I suppose this is such a driving force that they would be willing to go through through all of this to to hopefully have their own biological child. Um, the the aim for this particular um, woman was to to have her own biological children. Is is there any? other reason why you might want to or need to undergo a womb transplant? So the only other potential reason which would be subject to huge ethical debate would be as part of gender reassignment surgery. So would transplanting a uterus be the final part of a gender reassignment procedure? And there was a physician in India who had raised this debate that is this something that could be offered? But what we know to date is that there have been around 80 uterine transplants performed, but all of those have been for the ability to carry a pregnancy and lead to delivery. So that is the the indication for this procedure at present, certainly. Presumably, um, despite the, the changes that happen when someone is transitioning um, from male to female, presumably, even uh, taking all those changes into account, the male physiology could not accommodate uh, a, a fetus, even with a womb so, transplant. Is that correct? Correct. This would be a 
very experimental procedure, correct? The male pelvic anatomy is totally different to female pelvic anatomy, and it would be a real experimental intervention to consider trying this. So it certainly is something that would raise huge controversy if someone was to propose proceeding with this. You're not saying it's impossible, though. No, in theory, it could be performed, but just it would have multiple additional layers of complexity over the transplants that have been performed to date. Hmm. What does this mean for women living in Ireland who are uh, who have functioning ovaries, they can produce eggs, but because of complications with their womb, they won't be able to carry a pregnancy to full term? Is this a viable procedure for them or is this a, a very much an experimental trial that may lead to something 10, 20 years down the line? So in terms of what we know, in the UK, before this was all performed, there was a, an investigative study to work out what the potential demand for uterine transplantation in the UK would be. And they calculated that around about twelve to 15,000 ladies were in potential need of a uterine transplant. Mm. So assuming that the UK has a tenfold higher population than us, this would mean that there could be around about 1,200 to 1,500 ladies in Ireland who could need a uterine transplant. At present, surrogacy is the only viable alternative. So these ladies can have their eggs collected, embryos created, and then overseas, surrogacy can be performed to carry the pregnancy and deliver the baby. Surrogacy is a legally complex process where they then have to adopt the child back after delivery. Mm. So the benefit of transplantation over surrogacy is that then these ladies will carry their own pregnancy, deliver the baby, and it won't involve all of these legal aspects involved with surrogacy. Also, the ethical problem with surrogacy is that you're asking somebody else to carry the pregnancy for you. And medically, pregnancy is a much more complex physiological state than, than a lady would normally be exposed to. The risk of blood clots, high blood pressure, preeclampsia, hemorrhage are all much higher when pregnant than not exposed to lots of extra conditions. So with a transplantation, then the patient themselves carry the pregnancy and and go through it. So, it's But you still a, have to find a, someone to go through the, the donor part, which sounds really quite invasive. It, it's no correct. picnic. Correct. And there is a team of us in Ireland who have been investigating the feasibility of performing uterine transplants here. And very, very early on, we made the decision that a cadaveric or the deceased donation route would be the one that we would pursue if we were ever able to be able to perform it here right. because we're exposing the donor to that highly complex surgery. So most of the transplants globally are performed from live donors, but in Brazil, the Czech Republic and the United States, there are successful transplants from cadaveric donation. So my feeling is that this route provides much less ethical issues in, it, in terms of exposing the donor to such highly complex surgery. Um, in this uh, piece I was reading in The Guardian, it, it said that the, the woman was hoping to have one, possibly two children, and then afterwards the womb would be removed. Why on earth would they do that? So what we know is that the uterus lasts for 
either five years or two caesarean sections. So after the second caesarean section, they have to have a hysterectomy. Oh my God. Or five years, so whatever comes first. So the uterus is being transplanted knowing that it has a very defined lifespan before it will be removed. So unlike other organs, we're not transplanting something for long-term use. It's being transplanted very temporarily. So either deliveries must be by cesarean section. So at the time of the second cesarean section, a hysterectomy would be performed. Or because of the immunosuppressive medications required, after five years of the second pregnancy has not been achieved. So that's very unique in terms of transplantation. No other organ would be transferred with those criteria. Good God. I mean, it sounds yeah. like, a, it sounds like a, a, I mean, a disposable uterus is what we're talking about. I mean, um, being being frank about it. I mean, Correct. It, well, it's, it's a, a intervention. I, I mean, it just goes to show how driven, I suppose, some people are to have their own biological children and you must see that all the time in your work yes. um that this this drive to have your own child in your own uh, body seems to be such an overpowering um emotion that people are willing to undergo what sounds like hell and back uh, to get that yeah this is this is very true and as you've seen, this is not a straightforward process. This is very invasive and complex process, both for the donor and the recipient. So there has to be a very strong drive to achieve pregnancy and not go down that surrogacy route in order to even consider undergoing this. Really, really fascinating uh, work and really interesting to speak with you, Connor Harrity, uh, consultant gynecologist and medical director of First IVF. Thanks for your time. Brilliant. Thank you very much. I'd love to know what you made of that story because it is crazy, I think. Well, crazy. Crazy sounds like I'm judging. I'm not. I'm I it's wild what people will will put themselves through for for the things they want. Um absolutely incredible to me and uh when it, when I say crazy it sounds like I'm judging. I'm actually like just in awe of people who Say this is what I want to do, and the, and this is how I'm going to get it. Um, we'd love to hear your stories as well. By the way, if you have gone to extreme lengths to to have your children, we covered this story with a, um, a an amazing couple ten years ago um, who who went through IVF. And we heard all the ups and downs, and the pains, and the hopes, and the fears. Um, it's such a it's such a surreal thing to go through, and then to add the complication on of of IVF or transplants. It's just it's just wild to me. Love to hear your thoughts on it. Um, looking back now at uh, some of your comments from last week, there were only a couple. Uh, we were talking about aging um, with uh, Dr. Meng Wang, uh, who was talking about formaldehyde, uh, this chemical that is naturally produced in our bodies. It's a sort of a waste thing that actually uh, really accelerates cell aging by the sounds of it. And if you turn it off, cells don't age, certainly um, uh, as, as quickly, at least from this initial finding, which is really quite exciting. Someone says, Surely we shouldn't be trying to delay aging. Isn't a natural? Isn't that a natural biological process? Look, I'm only 47, and I have suddenly become a lot slower on my seven-a-side pitch, and it is killing me. Um, my back is also a little stiffer than it used to be. My hair is grey. My knees are old and bent. Like um, the 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 idea that I wouldn't want to be healthy for longer—that's that's insane. Um, to 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 age healthily, and then I don't know be knocked down by a car when I'm 105. That's that's what I want to do. Uh, I don't really want to 
you know, live to 80 and have my cells degrade to such a state where I am useless to anybody and dependent on, on, on every, so everyone around me. So, I mean, a- aging healthily is a good idea. Delaying aging in that way, I think would be a good idea too. And one other, we were talking about cosmic dust on the program. Uh, Brian on Twitter uh, spotted the Oscar Wilde reference. Uh, finishing up the always brilliant News Talk Science podcast with an Oscar Wilde dig deep reference. Excellent work, Jonathan McRae. Good to see you're listening. There's lots of references that um, I think go over most of people's heads um, in the program, uh, but I find them enjoy- enjoyable. That's it from us on this program, this week's program. Thanks to Marisa Sullivan, Simon Keane, Steve Dawn, John Byrne, and Hugo De Silva on sound. We'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed next Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.